If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. He's doing the Kevin Bridges thing again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your host Mark Fraser and I'm joined by the Hollywood Vampires. Oh God, uh, which one am I? I mean... I'll be Alice Cooper. Okay. Oh, you know, the weird, it's, it's a weird day when you're jealous because the other guy gets to be a quite conservative golfer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would. I think that's probably still better than Johnny Depp right now. I mean, I'll, I'll go Johnny Depp and... Could be I'll Joe just, Perry. Oh, no, I'll go Johnny Depp. <laughs> <laughs> Even a cancelled Johnny Depp is better than Joe Perry. <laughs> yeah. So, breaking from tradition, uh, we've actually spent time apart when we're doing two parts in one episode, which is the first time we've ever done that. Yeah, so we're having to catch up. By necessity, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'd like to pretend we were organised, but it was just sort of forced upon us. Just chaos. Yeah, where did we leave things? Uh, we were discussing supergroups. This is a, a recap, if you've not listened to part one of the Supergroup mixtape, or Side A. Uh, we discussed different kinds of supergroups. We talked about Just a Group, which was bands that, yeah, they were in other bands, but, you know, what musician isn't in some sort of other group? And therefore, the the band that they were in that was technically maybe a supergroup of sorts had kind of long since sort of shed that and become their main thing. Or maybe they were just never really that famous the bands they came from in the first place so it's kind of a bit inappropriate then there were uh what did we have with hangover core hangover core is like sort of projects that you can sort of imagine them being started backstage at festivals where everybody's schmoozing and being like hey man we've really got to get together sometime and do something or they've been at a party and somebody's been in charge of i was going to say the ipod how fucking old am i <laughs> um somebody's been in charge of the of the the Wurlitzer. Um, and <laughs> they've basically been, oh my god, you like uh, blackened Hawaiian folk metal? Uh, I do too. We should totally get together and do a blackened Hawaiian folk metal project. Uh, those kind of like 
things that seem to manifest every so often like electronic things quite often as well come from that where like some metal musician wants to do an electro collaboration uh we had billy big boys and the name droppers Mm -hmm. which were bands that seemed just there to remind us how famous everyone involved actually was uh although sometimes you know that falls under the remit of charity events stuff as well like band-aid things like that probably qualify uh and a, a few of them seemed as well like they'd probably been set up by labels or at least the label had said yeah, Dave Grohl, that's a great idea. Why don't we put you on a record with loads of your uh, childhood heroes? I'm sure that will make us a lot of money. And then they've kind of been all too happy to facilitate it. After that, we had United Desperations, named after the really quite good supergroup United Nations. It's not a diss at them, it's just convenient. Uh, but it's bands like McBusted and NKOTBSB, New Kids on the Backstreet Boys, uh, who seem only born of total midlife crises and the last the last category category e we'd called it unicorns and we kind of want to stress as well some of these overlapped there were people that qualified for both and there were people that seemed to sort of transition between them uh and i think category e unicorns super groups that really really worked say like mars volta was a particularly good example of that it kind of come together as a sort of schmoozy project but it just taken on a real momentum of its own So yeah, unicorns. So this brings us into side B of this the supergroup mixtape, uh, in which we shall each put forth an album by a supergroup, and you, the listener, can decide. Uh, but before we go there, uh, to get us rolling, I think we'll go over to Vicky, Vicky Henry, our sometime host, who's sent in her own choice of supergroup. Hiya, so supergroups, okay, well when you first mentioned that I thought that was going to be really hard because the first ones I thought of straight off the bat were absolute garbage, like Temple of the Dog Springs to mind, or Ancient, like I said the last time I was on, the Travelling Wilburys and Crosby, Stills and Nash and stuff like that, but when you think about it, um, there's quite a few groups that you might think, hmm, are they a supergroup, like, you know, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, um, even Fugazi, but you don't think of the bands when you think about a supergroup. And the reason is that I think a supergroup, everybody in it has an equal level of respect or success or um, previous fame or something like that. And there's also this kind of element of novelty or like a transient, something that's a, a somewhat one-off or temporary so not all of these bands really fit that but one that I think does and it's quite an obvious choice but it's Queens of the Stone Age They are probably the best supergroup you obviously have your core members. Josh Omi was in Caius and then did stuff with Screaming Cheese. But you also have this novelty factor in that they collaborated with, you know, there was a revolving door in musicians getting involved in their music. High profile, respected, competent musicians. You had Mark Lanigan, Dave Grohl, 
obviously Nick Oliveri was was with them for a while. Um, Brody Dow, she's got involved. Joey Castillo, and you know when I was reading about them, when I just did a wee bit of research there, you even like you have people popping up in their albums that are just like doing wee bits out the blue, probably because they're such great musicians that people are happy to work with them. So you even have like I read that a guy for Judas Priest was recording next door to them one day when they were recording and he popped in and did some vocals for them on on their album. So you have so many people involved in their music to a greater or lesser extent and they definitely hit a sweet spot. Their first album was excellent. In fact, the first three albums are pretty phenomenal and parts of their later albums are good too. <laughs> uh, they, they definitely developed a nice vibe of having this cool um, assemblage of cool people coming in and out. And okay, that's went down the tubes in recent years and maybe the less said about that, the better. But for me, Queens of the Stone Age are, are as good as a super group gets. I fucking hate Queens of the Stone Age. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, a bit much, isn't it, Mark? It's a bit of a hot take. <laughs> you need the hug. Is that what it is? So just many hugs. Throwing bombs just because he, he wants attention. Here. I think I've got a sunstroke. <laughs> Did you ever like Queens of Stone Age? No, I never liked them. Right. So, in that case, I can assure you that I hate Queens of Stone Age much, much more than you hate them. <laughs> Only because I liked them so much for so long and they are such a shadow of what they used to be. Or what he used to be. Um, it's it's an interesting choice. I would disagree with Vicky on a couple of points, though. Of course, uh, whilst, of course, you would. I brought. Well, I mean, it's Vicky. She would she would expect nothing less of me. <laughs> but um, I, I think she's broadly right. But I do think that very very few supergroups are made up of people of an equal level of fame. Uh, I think almost all the ones we talked about last week had maybe one or two or three. People that tended to be more prominent than the fourth, you know. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know. like Travelling Wilburys is pretty much the standout one that is like all legends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll yeah. like then well. ev- So many others are just like, oh, it's kind of a side project, but we've got somebody else in and yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it, I do agree that the ideal supergroup is as close to that as possible. Absolutely. And that's probably what she was getting at. But the very few actually managed to kind of get to that point. Um, with regards to Queens of Stone Age, uh, I mean, it's ironic that they've ended up as basically in Josh Home, given that they started as Josh Home. And I think a bit like Foo Fighters, they're a little bit of a, an oddity in this, and they definitely straddle a few of the genres um, or a, a few of the categories that, that we came up with. Uh they didn't start as a supergroup. They started as his project, mm-hmm. and he recorded and performed everything on that first record. And even though Nick Oliveri came in, it, it you know even Nick Oliveri, whilst he was notorious, he wasn't famous. You know he's probably famous for being notorious, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. And and their drummer in the first album was just this virtually unknown guy, uh, Latin American, I think, or maybe even Mexican. Um, so I think he'd been in Caius as well, so... I don't think he, he wasn't in them from the start, though. Was, was this Alfredo Hernandez? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Uh, he'd played for Caius. Because Brant, Brant Bjork was the drummer yeah. in Caius, you know. Um, like, Queens of the Stone Age, to me, kind of feel like it's more of an offshoot. If you're going to say it's a type of band, it's an offshoot that has then become more successful. <laughs> you know? I think it became a band, like, despite... Yeah. 
considerable prominence at some members. Queens of Stone Age were so revered and so successful, uh, at least in alternative circles, that they, they, they outgrew even those kind of fairly large origins. Um, and the fact that Josh has been the one like member from the beginning to the end, it, it, it is basically his project with totally, a group of yeah. other folk. It is kind of like Foo Fighters, you know, I guess. It's like, although Foo's have had a more stable lineup, to be honest. I find it, I do find it quite strange that Queens of Stone Age are as big as they are now. It's, it's, I, first, like, I always remember them as being a reasonably small band. Chaos weren't, Chaos weren't huge, right? And the first Queens album was getting so... Well, Rated R, is that the first one? I can't even remember. No, there was... No, no, the, the first self-titled. Album, the first self-titled. Mm-hmm. Well, they obviously started getting big with Rated R, right? Because those few would hit the summer, and that's when I remember them popping up. The fact they've gotten so big, ridiculous how big they are. I mean, fucking Josh Homme appears in an episode of uh, Toast of London. Have you seen that show? Mm-hmm. No, I bet yeah, I've yeah. seen the show. Yeah, of course, he, he appears in that as as a as a Toast's ex wife's new boyfriend. <laughs> but that's could be. I, say, I think it sees where we're in front of microphones. Can I just say? Yes, <laughs> yes, I can hear you, Glenn Fandango. Yes! Glenn Fandango. Um, but I, I mean, a big part of that, I think, is the fact that they had basically a crossover hit with No One Knows. They're like so, or they were early 2000s, just so legitimate as well and broadly yeah. liked by all indie fans, all alternative fans, rock fans, metal fans, metal fans, as well, you know, yeah. just so many people that liked so many different types of music could go. Oh yeah, Queens of Stone Age. They were like the alternative band. Yeah, they were the perfect storm of credibility and tunes and chops and recognisability. And they also, the people, like, Vicky's right, like, it did definitely got to a point where Queens of Stone Age was courting celebrity. It had all these people like Chris Goss and Mark Lanigan and Dave Grohl coming in and then, like, bit part contributors and Josh Holmes was doing stuff with PG Harvey as part of Desert Sessions. And that was all very much part of the, the attraction around Queens of Stone Age. It was like an alternative gang. You know, there was a very cool gang and they were very careful about who they let into it as well. There were very few sort of cringe-worthy people getting in there. There was a lot of like quite, it seemed like there was a lot of vetting going on with who, who was allowed to be associated with Queens of Storage. And then gradually that kind of drifted. as well. Maybe they took themselves just a bit too seriously after a while and then that sort of started to transition back to it just being Josh's project. They also just started running out of good songs. <laughs> yeah, know. I mean, they now do, they now do one an album. Um, yeah. Generally, if if won an album, do you um, know what's so funny? Yeah, they- is I I saw Kerrang had tweeted last week every Queens of the Stone Age ever album uh, ranked from worst to best. You know, like no. they do. Uh, the debut album came last. No, <laughs> they, as in best. No, they put Queens of the Stone Age as the worst album. That's fucking ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, that's debatably the best album. I mean, it's obviously in the top three because the first three albums are the best. But wow. yeah, so that 
All right, Krang, thanks very much. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking nonsense. Um, yeah, so they're a weird one. Uh, and I do think they're a bit of a unicorn. I do think they really work for most of their career. I think they're kind of losing it a bit now. Um, and I do think they became something of just a band. And I do think they were sort of Billy Big Boys and the name droppers for a while. don't think they've ever got to Desperation Station, but if they keep producing music like they are currently, they certainly will. Uh, and also, yeah, you get the feeling with Queens of St- well, you know for a fact that a lot of Queens of Stone Age product is, is hangover core because the tracks from Desert Sessions, which was just one big sesh in the desert, mm-hmm. yeah. a lot of those tracks, including Make It With You and all those kind of things, they came from the, those jams. So they're like four of the five categories in this one band, and yeah. I think they'll get, I think they will get to category number five sooner rather than later. Well, apparently, the- uh, Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top has been contributing to the new album, so that's probably oh, a bad man. sign. Yeah. Are they not doing an album with Paul McCartney? I mean, I mean if that's if true, that's ever, bullshit. <laughs> if, I mean, that, 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 this is like the, the new Paul McCartney album has Josh Homme on it mm. and a, a couple of other collaborators, I think, from the, that project. I mean, it's the most redundant, fucking dusty, pointless, fucking meandering cardigan fucking music ever. I mean, just fuck off with that, honestly. <laughs> John Paul Jones, you can forgive it because it's, it's, you know, whatever, but fucking Paul McCartney, get the fuck. So see before we move on right to our, our choices I wanted to ask you guys were there albums that you thought about but then didn't pick? Uh, yeah for me I was nearly going to go Shrine Builder Which is a very good album yeah. Which got mentioned. Um, and I did... There was a point where I was thinking about A Perfect Circle's first record, but I really liked that when I was 17, but do I ever go back and listen to it? Nah. <laughs> so th- those are my two other options, I think. Uh, for me, Mark, no, no. I, my first thought is always the right thought. So <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, I did, because I think, as you know, and you're, this is perhaps a little bit disingenuous, you know that I was considering picking the same band as you, albeit an entirely different record and that's going to make up the thrust of my argument against you really so I'm trying not to throw in too many spoilers uh, yeah, there was a few options but the one I've chosen I think is a pretty safe choice in terms of it'll definitely connect with a lot of our listeners because I think it's quite fondly thought of by loads of people I was going to go with Dead Cross until you went with Phantomass It's a good record, and it's, it's kind of it kind of came about the same way as the first Faith No More. Mike's first Faith No More record, where it recorded an album and he needed a singer, and he just came in and did it, which is pretty cool. Um, also thought about Anti Mask, which is like an offshoot of the Mars Volta. Cedric and Omar and Flea from the Chili's and Dave Eldritch, who was in the Mars Volta for a bit and was then in Killer Be Killed um, on drums. And then he didn't do an album, but I almost did One Day's a Line. Have you heard of that project? Yeah, it was actually that first EP was great. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's the only thing I've done. Yeah. Um, it's great. So it's basically Zach De La Roca. The only thing he's done outside of Rage is a full, complete body of work with Thomas Pridgen from the Marsvola. And Zach raps and plays Rhodes piano and it's just drums. I had that and drums. It's really cool. Really cool record. Yeah. But it was actually, yeah, I really enjoyed that actually. Um, I'm sceptical of Mars Volta offshoots just because the Mars Volta is so anemic as a band now anyway. I don't think they can afford to give blood. Um, <laughs> I mean, Omar, has, he's got about 190 albums on his discography. So yeah, at, at some point he's going to start repeating himself. Yeah, and then the last one was Felt, which is the Atmosphere and Mars. Sorry, Slug from Atmosphere and Mars. We did Dave on three albums. I think we're doing a fourth one now. Usually use a different producer or a different kind of person doing the beats and the one I was going to pick at Aesop Rock in production. It's a great record. Might actually pop up on this, but almost went for that as well, but... I did not. Yeah, well, as you say, I chose Phantom Ass and the album I picked was the director's cut, although I did toy with picking their eponymous debut, but I think director's cut's a more interesting discussion. Uh, David, you have... Nola by down. (laughs) Nola by down. Glass of milk emoji triple brackets, that kind of pattern. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be purely arguing on the sake of their music and, uh, you know, separating the art from the artist, guys. (laughs) Uh, And Mark, you have chosen me first in the Gimme Gimme's, but controversially, you went for. Take a break. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. It's not warm when she's away. Which I mean, if, if you look online, not, if you look online, the, the reviews of their albums, like they're all like review wise, they're all pretty close. Uh, on rate your music, it's like just as high as uh, Born in the Wind. And I mm. think I think there's I don't really don't think there's much between those two albums. I think those two albums are the most consistent that they've been. The other albums are quite patchy. Who wants <laughs> to go first, guys? Who wants to go first? Who wants to be wrong first? Let's look at the Nazis in the room. Uh, all right, let's start at the right and work our way left. Um, Nola by Down, the debut by what, Sludge Stoner Metal Supergroup. Yeah, so Definitely basically New Orleans sweaty supergroup. Very swampy. Um, yeah, so swampy. <laughs> um, so, what are you talking? Phil and Selmo. Uh, so they start. They started in 1991. So I guess Phil had been in Pantera for a while. Cowboys from Hell had maybe just come out. Pepper Keenan from Corrosion of Conformity. Uh, Kirk Winstein from Crowbar.
Withers from Goat Whore and then on drums they had Jimmy Bohr who actually plays guitar for Crowbar and I Hate God and then a, a few of them all also get together for Super Joint Ritual who are basically just down but even higher uh, <laughs> I, ha- I have to say I thought it was Todd Strange that played in this one and that Pat Bruders didn't come in until uh, much later um, and I think I think it was like Todd Strange then Rex Brown for Pantera and then Pat Bruders that did this in that order so I'm pretty sure this is a strange album oh yeah no you're or right fact, I'm, no I'm... I tell you what Todd Strange wasn't even on the album Kirk Winstein did the bass and the guitar on the album and then Todd Strange joined yeah sorry I, I was listing their current lineup there mm-hmm. but uh, yeah Down got together and I, what would you class them as because they're basically just all pals mm-hmm. and they happen to be in other bands so I guess they're kind of a hangover one but they're also just pals anyway and would have done it you know, had they not been in other bands, maybe? There's been a lot of hangovers and down. Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah so th- they formed in 1991 and they put together a wee de- three-track demo EP. And, um, yeah, what, what they used to do was, like, Phil and Pepper would go and, like, just hand the cassette to folk and go, oh, hey, man, you should listen to this band called Down and not mention that they were in the band. And that was, like, their little thing for, for spreading the vibe. And eventually that kind of worked and it got spread and then of course they, they played a show in, in New Orleans and got signed immediately because uh, a record executive from Electra, I think it was, just immediately realised who was all in the band and was like, all right, well, doesn't matter if you're good or not, you're getting signed. Um, I, don't, and then, like, I think that's apocryphal, man. That's got to be right because Pantera were on Electra as well. Yeah. So, Contract-wise, they probably had to sign the band. In order yeah, to that's true. <laughs> yeah, but they, yeah, so I guess they were all busy in other bands, and Nola didn't actually come out until late nineteen ninety-five. And I mean, it's I guess it's not unsung per se because it was critically acclaimed. Um, Heavy Metal Press really fucking enjoyed it. You know, a landmark album dedicated rock musicians uh, should be included in the, the collection of any heavy metal fan um, and then they did a little 13 date US tour and then they basically just fucked off and did their own bands for a while and then since then they came back in 2002 with um, Down 2, A Bustle in Your Head Grow. I remember Hang that on, can, we, can we just repeat that name for, yeah. for posterity because this is <laughs> the fucking stupidest album name that we've encountered in some time uh, yeah I know, Down 2, A Bustle in Your Head Row. Um, is that meant to be? In, is that meant to be innuendo? Is no, it's, it's, no, it's a, a, a reference from Stairway to Heaven. Yeah, it's a Led Zeppelin lyric. It's probably yeah. I mean, I, mean, I think Stairway to Heaven, Heaven was just nonsense and innuendo, and you know, Led fuck Zeppelin. knows. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that one. So apparently, that that album was recorded. Uh, Rex Brown from Pantera came on to replace Todd Strange and was recorded in 28 drug and booze induced days in Phil Anselmo's barn which is called <laughs> Nodforatu's Lair <laughs> can you imagine the stink the absolute stench of that place um, and yeah funnily enough I think I remember seeing like a once again crying was wrong they, they, it got like a four or five star review just because it was like oh Phil Anselmo's back and I remember buying that record because I really liked Nola and like the first two tracks I thought were great
because I mean this band are all about riffs but you can tell that they were just fucked for the rest of the album mm. yeah really lacking ideas just ugh, kind of fucking about and then yeah the band had just kind of been on and off ever since they released another album in 2006 and then they did it was basically a split album they split it into two EPs in 2011 I think and I doubt it was down four in 2012 and then down four part two yeah part two which have some decent tracks on them uh, I think 2016 then had the uh, the old Anselmo white power Nazi salute controversy <laughs> the white wine yeah. controversy the thing is like this is, this is one of the things about Pantera though you know it's like it's kind of like Republican voters you, you you will explain away something for so long until it's just impossible like literally impossible to explain it away any further and his excuses for that Nazi salute at the what was it Dimebag Fest or whatever it's yeah. called yeah yeah, yeah. I have tried really, really hard to find the clippings, right? But I am almost certain that back in 95 or 96, I had a copy of Kerrang! where they did an article about Phil Anselmo and his insistence on going on stage in white power t-shirts. Literally white t-shirts with black block letters that said white power. And they'd interviewed him about it. It was maybe even an NME at the time as well. And he'd said, oh, well, I don't understand why rappers can go on stage with t-shirts that say black power. And I can't go on st- t-shirts, sh- on stage with shirts that say white power. And I've tried really fucking hard to find this, but this is like something I've known about in Selmo for a long, long time. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. that one's known about that for a long time, man. It's been- yeah, and 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 that and his court and like the the Confederacy and Confederate crosses and stuff, and not just at Kitch Value, clearly, and. It, it, you know, it's one of those like dumbfounded moments where it's like Phil Anselmo threw a fucking Nazi salute. You're like, oh wow, <laughs> fucking hell. You know, it's just it, it. It was such a given, and so it was really. I don't know. It kind of rubbed me up the wrong way when everybody was suddenly like, right, that's me. I'm off Pantera. And I'm like, well, what the fuck have you? Been, where have you been looking previously? And yeah, that was who the guy was. That that's that's who he is. Yeah, he's he's, he's got previous. He's got form. It's interesting um, for me, man, because like obviously they, they toyed around in their early Pantera in their early career. Not their early early career when they were a glam metal band, but you know, when Phil joined they became an actual thrash band. Um they toyed around using obviously the, the rebel flag and the Confederate flag and stuff like that, and later on as as things went on, um Dimebag and Rex and, and Vinny all started to realise that actually we probably should be doing this, this is actually bullshit. And Phil Yeah, did. I remember their <laughs> Yeah, their early statement was like the South pride not prejudice. I was like, oh yeah, it's very clever. But then I think, um, yeah, Phil maybe let yeah, but that's prejudice part of that re- seep in. <laughs> that's part of the that rhetorical game that that the the, the white right has been yeah, no, absolutely on all different levels of the culture wars for ages now, getting away with despicable behaviour because of like nods and winks and deniability and you know willful ignorance on people's parts. Like so, yeah. So I mean. I, obviously, I understand why you picked this album because it's so significant amongst followers of the genre, and mm-hmm. because it is sort of seen as being objectively of very high quality. And I had no no doubt that you were going to be conflicted about it, but it's still worth talking about. Oh yeah, know, I, th- whole- I I think that's the whole point. Is like I think we can still critically evaluate the record and mm-hmm. talk there's, about there's it. Also a- but then what we have to do is talk about all of the the caveats. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's also a lot of other people on this record. I mean, I've paid to go and see I Hate God, and I don't know anything about them that suggests they're of the same beliefs. Yep. Same, same with, with Crowbar as well. But at, at the same time, I very much doubt in those 28 days they spent in Phil and Selmo's barn that there wasn't at least one giant fucking Confederate cross hanging on a wall, you know? So... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sceptical about how, how little these people know about a guy, but regardless, if you put all that shit to the side and just embrace it on a musical level, um, we'll obviously include samples. Personally, I would say, don't buy this album, go and fucking download it, rip it <laughs> off. I don't yeah. give a fuck, man. The other guys have other stuff bringing money into them, and, and Selmo, the, the idea of giving that guy money just really bothers me, so we're not, we're not trying to promote it in any way, shape or form. Um, but I think more so, to the point, I actually think it's grossly overstated in terms of its quality that's what i'd more like to dig into if you take with the we've put all the sort of emotional stuff and all the political stuff and all the all my virtue signaling is out the road now so um <laughs> in terms of like actually as a bit of music i took it for granted for years that this was just objectively good regardless of all the baggage and then going back to it now i'm like this is objectively shite and that's that's something that's really no, but that's something that's really shifted for me because I hadn't really gone at it from a critical standpoint. Yeah. Or sorry, perhaps the opposite is true, but I'd gone at it from too critical a standpoint, too too much of like, oh, these are like a sort of lesser known master of this genre, and then I was like, oh, this is just fucking corny, fucking macho cheeseball fucking rock. This is like pub rock, but done with a much bigger platform and maybe a slightly bigger budget. I don't know, man. I mean, what is it that makes this better than any number of people that came before or after? Um, well, I mean, I don't know. When I when I first got this record, I was sixteen, and I was just like, "Oh yeah, it's like Black Sabbath, but slower or faster, and kind of got a bit of hardcore." It was right in your face with riffs, and mm-hmm. riffs really talked to me at a guttural bass level. And I mean, what are down if they aren't guttural and bass? And that's true, you know, um, <laughs> appealing to my the most base of my instincts. I don't know. I, I guess it speaks to me slightly culturally for a reason, and I don't mean that in a right wing way. But I mean, <laughs> in a, uh, it it sounds like a really southern Louisiana album. I've been to Louisiana a, a few times. We've got family friends there, and I'll, I f- absolutely love it. And my favorite Bond film is Live and Let Die because they go through Louisiana and. Uh, I I love the swamp. I I love the humidity. I love the heat. I love the Tabasco sauce. And this <laughs> album is just that. You know, it's a big fucking sweaty, straight to the point. You know, grim as fuck record. See, just on that point, yeah, yeah. I mean, I really agree with you that the one interesting thing about it is how well it does capture parts of that scene musically, but also that part of the world. Because I think even the artwork of the booklet was done as a photographer called Clarence John Lachlan, mm-hmm. and he was famous for touring the American South and taking these really like stark, uh, very powerful images of of life there, like 
good and bad. You know, he had some quite controversial images. He had images of like abject poverty. Quite, quite a, an accomplished artist in that sense, and it's so that's an interesting inclusion because there is obviously an affection for it. The album as well is called Nola because it's New Orleans, Louisiana, mm-hmm. and that's like their favorite place in the world. That's that's what they named it after, and so there is like a genuine affinity and love of their culture. I'm using that word advisedly. Um, there, there, you know that that part of it I think is is quite commendable, and it's very true, and it is very. Yeah, it feels authentic. That's probably the word I'm going for. I just think like, the well, racism's authentic as well, though. Yeah, yeah, possibly. <laughs> it's but very true. like, I've listened to Corrosion of Conformity, and I've listened to Crowbar, and I've listened to Superjoint Ritual, Ritual, and like, I Hate God are great, but like, a lot of these are quite challenging listens and quite uh, abrasive. And I think what Down gets right is that it's. It is all these things, it's heavy and it's slimy and it's sweaty, but it also, my mum could probably listen to it because it just gets that sort of classic rock vibe to it just right and it's got Mm. hooks and it's, yeah, it is bluesy and like, you know, my mum listens to, you know, Wishbone Ash and Deep Purple and stuff like that. I know for a fact, I think I I remember putting this on in the car and she was like, oh, mm, I like this a lot. And Deep Purple is an interesting analogy, definitely. I think they obviously draw a lot from Sabbath, mm-hmm. but the vocal approach is very different for me, and I think that's significant. Uh, St. Vitus as well. Yeah. That band Trouble that we mentioned, um, one of the first ever kind of like... Yeah, totally. Dark Stonery albums, Trouble. Um, I think, yeah, Corrosion of Conformity at a reference point. I think like so the, the Obsessed... They were like obsessed were formed, I think, around about nineteen eighty. And they were admittedly they were from Maryland, but it's not miles and miles away. Uh you've got Melvins as well in the early to mid eighties. Mm-hmm. There were other bands like from sort of far flung regions, you'd Spirit Caravan, uh you had Orange Goblin, Electric Wizard. They started to do this mixture of like blues and psychedelic metal. Um, I also think that something that's not really spoken about a lot with this album is how much it has in common with some of the corniest grunge, like Alice in Chains, oh, yeah, for and sure. early early Soundgarden. Even like sonically, it's got quite a lot in common with the Bleach album by Nirvana. Yeah, you know, it's that murkier blues thing. So there are things about it that are interesting. Um, from the stoner point of view, it lacks the levity or like the accessibility of like bands like Nebula or, or Orange Goblin or Clutch, for example. Clutch are like a band that a lot of people that like down like Clutch. But for me, Clutch are a much more likable prospect because they don't have that po-facedness and that same sense. I mean, they have a macho swagger, but it's not a misogynistic swagger. I don't know. That's the thing with down. Like their, ma- their machismo crosses a line to being just like so alienatingly fucking testosterone driven the vocals just make my skin crawl because it's so cheesy i mean that's that's what i mean about pub rock i mean it's like there are blues metal bands going about now who are rightly scoffed at who sound alarmingly like down albeit without the sort of pedigree and 
I just think this is such a redundant and rightly mocked format of music now. Um, the, the mid-90s produced a bunch as well in Sweden, which I think was of a slightly higher standard. You had Dozer and a band called Lowrider. These bands worked with the likes of Mandruin and I think Dozer did a split with Caius. And Caius are the, the main reference point as well. Because Caius did a similar thing, but sort of managed to kind of eschew the alienating machismo. I know a, a, a mm-hmm. lot of my friends who are Caius fans are female and I think that's telling because I don't know many of my friends who are Down fans that are female um, and I mean in the long run as well they sort of I think Down the sound and the style led to stuff like Iron Monkey and Raging Speedhorn over here who, who I like more yeah. especially Iron Monkey I really like Iron Monkey and I think they, they owe quite a lot to it so there, there are good things that have come from it but that big fucking holding your own balls while you're crooning. I, I just think that cornball shit is like so passe, man. I, I, I can't engage with it on a sort of objective level now of being like, yeah, this is very accomplished because it's fucking embarrassing. <laughs> well, I mean, you can come at me with facts all you like, Chris. <laughs> the fact is... The main fact is that there's fucking riffs everywhere on this record. There are riffs. There really and, are. Uh, any f- any favourites? Temptations Wings, Pillars the best of Eternity. Song on the album, man. But Temptations Wings is easily the best song on the record. Yeah, it's a belter. Um, that that I, track, I, is it four? Rehab. Rehab. That's the one that sounds like Seattle to me. Sound yeah, see, that's when games, they do, they like, go a bit grungy. I'm not that into that because I was never into Alice in Chains. Um, there's sometimes they just sound a bit straightforward metal that doesn't quite work either. I, what really works is when they do big heavy blues riffs. Mm-hmm. Um, like, Eyes of the, the South. South. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then, in actual fact, the quieter tracks are actually... Like Jail? I don't, I don't mind them. Like Jail and Stone the Crow. Stone the Crow is a proper grunge song, man. Like That's, that's the reason why that was in the top 40 in America. That's, yeah. that's why they got so big. The, the one I knew... The, the one I recognised the most when I was listening through it was the second one, Lifer. Yeah, 
I yeah. think that's the one I've heard most on repeated plays. Yeah, that's probably in a lot of you know stoner metal you know playlists and stuff. A lot it's of just a big riff. Um, I just like I really appreciate a big fucking riff on a you know Gibson Les Paul through some heavy distortion. Just half time those drums and do the same thing again. Yeah, I mean it's a very guttural and it's a gut feeling for me. I went back to this album and I hadn't really listened to it for 15 years. And yeah, you have to have all these caveats. But I listened to this album maybe like 12 times in the last week and a half and I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's bits that I skip and there's bits that I don't enjoy as much. But like overall, just as a pure, shallow musical experience, I really fucking like it still. Mm. So best not consumed with white wine in case you accidentally find yourself endorsing the third reich well exactly <laughs> so um i mark you want to take a spin at this or will i uh let's fucking do it yeah so me first in the gimme gimme's Uh, Fat Wreck Supergroup, all the people in this band were all on Fat Wreck at the time, <laughs> including the owner and founder of Fat Wreck, Fat Mike from NoFX. It consists of uh, Spike Lawson from uh, Swingin' Utters, specifically, uh, specifically Swingin' Utters in my head, but he's been on a bunch of other projects as well. Filthy Thieves, uh, You Cunt, which I like, <laughs> and the Revolts. <laughs> um, Chris Shifflett, who was in No Use for a Name at this point, um, or who was in no use for name the band started sorry but is most well known as being the guitar player the lead guitar player in Foo Fighters and Joey Cape and Dave Ron from or Dave Ruin from Lagwagon who are a really influential and I think perhaps slightly unsung punk band in their own right uh, Joey Cape particularly was really really close with Tony Sly from no use for name so like all the all the guys in this band have pedigree um, they had a lot of people passing through the ranks as well though beyond that group didn't they they had people for Bad Religion uh, Minor Threat because if, if in true supergroup style, right, if you want to tour, particularly probably Spike Slauson, who's probably making more money from me first again, from any other project that he's done, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're probably going to want to take it in tour and have a good time, right? So you're going to have to fill in some members. So you've had Brian Baker from Minor Threat and Bad Religion in it. You've had uh, Scott Shifflett from Face to Face, who's Chris's brother, on bass. Mm-hmm. Um, Melvin from uh, No Effects on, on bass as well, filling in for Fat Mike. Um, Jay from Bad Religion. Some of the guys with friends with Rom, who are in like a really well-known Australian punk band yep. that are also on Fat Wreck. Yeah. The, the Living End as well Living End, uh, yeah The Vandals, I believe, as well Yeah, uh, but formed in 1995, San Francisco mm-hmm. Got their name from a children's book as well Yeah Which was news to me, I'd never bothered to look into the, the origin of that uh, And uh, their first two releases were John Denver covers Life is old, older than the trees Younger than the mountains Growing like a breeze control Take me home So it was like they did like a split or like a double A side to John Denver covers and this maybe wasn't even expected to be like a long term thing but it mm-hmm. grew arms and legs as a result. Loads of albums and all the albums are themed. Yep. 
you want to take us on a little tour of these or will I do it? Yeah, let's do it together, right? At <laughs> uh, the same time. Yeah, we both, we both Hold like hands. So, like, 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 so the first one is Have a Ball, right? Which is kind of like hits from the 60s and 70s and one from the 80s, which is Uptown. Classic girl. songwriters yeah. is what they define it as. I think it was more of a just a hodgepodge, but yeah, classic yeah. songwriters. So, um, Joy Cape has said in interviews that he, the, the, the thing that we first really trade in is that quote-unquote guilty pleasures, like making guilty pleasures into punk songs, right? So that's what Dave's, Dave, Dave says there's no such thing. I, I don't think it? there's any such thing either, to be, to be honest, I don't <laughs> think there is either. But I, I, can, but I can see, uh, well, the songs in this are like really huge, pop, really huge pop songs, right? So I can see where they're kind of coming from. Um, and I, sp- I think it's worth saying at this point, man, that I think Spike Lawson has the perfect voice for this. There's nobody else in this band, Fat Mike or Joey Cape specifically, who could sing like half yeah. of these songs. He's actually got yeah, a really he, good voice. He's got. Yeah, when you're covering really melodies like this, you need to be able to ride the fucking melody. Yeah, and <laughs> totally. you know, get that hook in and carry it off with a plum. Because can you imagine Fat Mike singing these songs? Oh yeah. my god! <laughs> <laughs> uh, so they followed that one with Ara Drag. Wipe every smile away. Life is a cabaret. Come to the cabaret. Which was all show tunes, wasn't it? All show tunes. Which... That sounds good. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Like yeah, so that so that's like over the rainbow. Don't cry for me, Argentina. Fan of the opera. <laughs> uh, yeah, so bad idea. I mean, I fucking um, hate show tunes, but yeah. I fucking hate just musicals generally and cabaret and all that bollocks. So yeah, that's a terrible idea. Um, they then followed that with what I think was an absolute masterstroke for me, their best album because it it's just pitched perfectly at their strengths. So this is called "Blowing in the Wind." Uh, Blowing the wind uh, because it's because. All of them, it's me first and the gimmies, gimmies, do something. So it's me first and the gimme, gimmies, blow in the wind. Ah, right, okay, so blow in the wind, then there you go. I'm sure we all have a soft spot for like classic 60s tunes, you know, mm. like you know, all the kind of doo-wop stuff and jukebox hits and Back to the Future-esque milkshake at the diner kind of vibes. And I just think it just works so fucking well in the context of this band. It's just an era of music that lends itself so fucking well to good covers because obviously amazing songwriting, often very sort of leanly produced back in the day, unless it was obviously Phil Spector doing it. Mm. Um and so these kind of updated versions of it, even in the kind of punk format, they work really, really well. Yeah, it's worth saying as well, what we haven't pointed out is that they'll often do like interpolations of punk songs as well. Uh, and they'll either have an intro or a little bit of a song by a really famous punk band. So, for example, in Blowing the Wind on Eleanor, it starts with London Calling by The Clash and then they, they work into the song. Just can't live without you. Yeah, that, that works really well too. It's a nice little little nod to the punk. 
Um, see, see when you're talking about the qualities vocals. So um, you know the track "Who Put the Bump," the third one, mm-hmm. which starts with that really kind of jazz hands kind of. I'd like to thank the girl. Yeah, <laughs> that is just brilliant, and he he leans into that so well. I think like the vocals in this album are the best vocals they've done for me overall. It just maybe because it really suits them. Slip John B is fucking inspired in this, as are some of the things like Runaway, I Only Want to Be With You, which I think is a terrific version, and Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. All of those vocal stuff on this album is what elevates it for me above all the other records. You give your love so sweetly Tonight the light of love is in your eyes But will you love me tomorrow? Yeah. There are great bits and bobs in all of these records that we're talking about, but this album consistently, sorry, Blowing the Wind consistently has great songs. The next one is Take a Break, which is the one I've picked. Uh, and I'll come back to that because there's also a reason, I think, that your mileage, like people's mileage, in my opinion, for each album varies. And then after that, they released a live album. <laughs> is this Ruin Johnny's Bar Mitzvah? <laughs> Ruin Johnny's Bar Mitzvah. So they actually played a Bar Mitzvah <laughs> and then just recorded the whole thing. Dave Ron on the drum. Uh, and it's it's amazing because it, it contains like a whole set of songs which has never been recorded elsewhere. So it's just like just their versions of these songs at a bar mitzvah, including the talking in between and people shuffling mm. around in the background and all that. And it's it's just a lot yeah. of just a lot of fun. Um, and I think as well the context of like weddings, bar mitzvahs, birthdays. You know, you're used to like people, some DJ with like those crappy spinny coloured lights that you, you know the fucking dodgy ones mm. that sit on the floor thing is when you listen to guilty pleasure music anyway you know somebody puts on aha or fucking seal or the beatles or something like that and so the context of that really that's pretty good as well mm. um the the next one can get so far in the fucking yeah, bin not a fan of that record at all man <laughs> love their country country and americana what a fucking terrible idea that was i mean there's, there's a couple of, like so i listened to this obviously in preparation for this and their cover of desperado is pretty good because it's a good song but a lot of it i just i just don't like the songs so now right you're gonna have to help me here because i'm pretty sure well i know for a fact that dave's high school band klaxon we <laughs> we covered country roads take me home. and i can't find their version of country roads on an album and it I thought it was on this record, but well, this, would have, this record came out after but we, the first did, ever we did it. was two John Denver covers. Oh, yeah, so it might have been that. Yeah, after Love the Country released Have Another Ball, which is like a compilation. Oh, well, it says it's on that. It says it's yeah. on Have Another Ball. Bo- oh, but that's a compilation with... Ah, uh, okay, yeah. Yeah, all, yeah, all the yeah. stuff that had that had basically had had been in like EPs and all that, and been released elsewhere, um, is on is on having a lot of ball. Uh, that makes that yeah, makes sense because I think we covered it in like two thousand and two, and I'm like, how does this work? But um, okay, it has it has like this. It's got a really good um, the, the cover. Their cover of the boxer, I think, is really good. In that actually, I really like that. I, I like that you covered a cover. <laughs> we covered a couple a couple of covers. We covered uh, that, and then we also covered the Marilyn Manson version of Sweet Dreams, but we made it punk. Uh, that's right. Yeah, you did. So you, did. you me firsted the Marilyn Manson. Yep. <laughs> 
Um, and are we not men? We are diva. Play on the title by Devo, mm-hmm. uh, but this is all uh, non-male artists. Yeah, and it's a tall order. A lot of these songs are big. <laughs> you need to have a big voice to do them. But there's some a lot cool of them stuff. Are shit. Yeah, there's, there's some cool stuff on it. I think the cover of "I Will Survive" is good. Um, Karma Chameleon is great. If I listen to your lies, would you say I'm a man without conviction? I'm a man who I love, I love the version of that. I just think it's so much fun. It makes you smile every single time. Um, beautiful, that uh, the, obviously the Christina Aguilera cover. That was when Joey and Kate were talking about on the interview for this album, saying that we picked a bunch of songs that we thought were guilty pleasures. Like you wouldn't imagine a punk band doing a punk version of Beautiful. And you know your 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 uh, results may vary for that one, or your mileage may yeah. vary for that one. There's a reason why they don't do it, and they shouldn't do it. Yeah, and then the last thing they released, which uh, caused uh, caused Chris Shifflett to leave the band, <laughs> <laughs> um, was uh they did they did a, a Christmas release in 2018, and basically they. He said that if they're going to start releasing music that I'm not involved in playing, then I don't think I should be in the band anymore. It's like one fucking song, mate. <laughs> yeah, but apparently it was in pretty bad terms, their, their breakup after all that. Yeah, because that, 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 he was raging about that. He's raging about them releasing one song he didn't play on. It just feels wrong. Like, me first in the gimmies, gimmies should not be dramatic or sad <laughs> or angry. Like, the whole point is... This is stupid. <laughs> Santa, like, Santa baby, Santa baby, it was. Yeah, imagine falling out over a Santa baby punk cover. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Mark, this is this is pretty good. Um, if I was to pick out any of my favourites, I'll be theirs. All right. Crazy, I, you know, I hated Crazy the first time I heard it because Crazy, you know, the Seal song mm-hmm. is such a fucking unbelievably good Sub-bagger. song. Yeah. Initially, it was like, oh, I don't fucking cover that. But they they do a not too bad version of it. It's, it's all right. Um, I think Ain't No Sunshine is maybe the best one on it, just because it's a fun version of it. You know, me first take some interesting approaches at their best to to how they interpret songs, and I think "Blowing the Wind" has some of the most interesting instrumentation. The way they've taken like the hook from a song and translated it, you know. So I only want to be with you. The guitar line, for example, in single string really works really well. But in this album, it seems like there's sort of a little bit an autopilot. Like, okay, take the chords, turn them into power chords, play the power chords. That's the song. Then just sing it. And I think that interpretation is a little bit lazy compared to some other places. Not all the way through the album. Like I said, I think Crazy is probably quite interesting. Um, but uh, I th- I think that with this, you can't really critically assess it too deeply i think it's basically which songs do you like most and have they done it well yes they've they've done most well and these are this and that's fine it's like you prefer blow in the wind mark prefers this you know because it's got prince on it well and r kelly that that, 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 that prince cover (laughs) 
<laughs> right. Look, if, if if you're going to do the song, save, like save the best for last is the worst example of it for me, right? Because you're going to do a kind of R and B song. There's a lot of different things you can do with the way you interpret that. Even in a punk band, you know, they've done it in other albums where they've played, played palm muted stuff or they've used the bass a lot or whatever. Whereas in that, they're just like chord, 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 and it's so fucking pedestrian. I just I think that approach to it is just really like right, let's just get get it finished and get it out. And I, I don't know. I think it's okay in places. Also, R Kelly. Didn't age, yeah. But um, didn't yeah. didn't age. I think you know. For me, my mum's really into R and B, so like a lot of these songs, I was aware of. So I guess I was probably. Why is everybody talking about their mums this week? I guess what the fuck is the deal with this mum week? Mums are important. There's a lot of these songs which I guess are stuck in my head generally. So I like I like their versions of them. Um, their cover of nothing compares to you is rubbish because I fucking hate ska. So like that, that was <laughs> yeah, it's rotten. Immediately, like no, it's not happening. Do you think we'll um, ever do a ska album? I mean, obviously not. We'll have to, uh, maybe. Uh, but who's going to do it? Ideas. Yeah, paint <laughs> themselves into a corner. That's all we can do now. I know. Um, hello, I like hello. I think it's cool, uh, especially for the wee harmony at the end. The hello, hello, hello. It's, it's just funny. Um, one of the reasons I love this record and, and a lot of their songs in general is because all these guys are super professional, talented punk musicians, but the whole thing is so effortless. Like, they're just in the studio having a laugh, having a good time. You know, like, how many times have we been in a practice room, right, with our band, and someone has started playing the chords from, like, a, some shitty song and you've just, like, jammed it? It's just it's just fun, right? It's not overthought. It's not overplayed. They're not trying too hard either. And I think yeah. it's just really good because, like, there's just this carefree energy to it. Um, and maybe maybe that's maybe that's part of the reason why a lot of this record is just like chord 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 because they're not trying they don't have to try you know I think they straddle a fine line between homage and, and reverence and they clearly love the songs as well because they don't take the, the, the complete piss out of them even fucking having a ukulele and uh, I believe I can fly which is just a, <laughs> a really poor choice but you wouldn't do it if you didn't think it was going to work you know I think there's really I think they've got a, a lot of heart and a lot of warmth and it just makes me smile whenever I hear them yeah, I mean, they, they're a fun band, but I don't think this is their best collection. I thought, well, for me, it is because, like I said, a lot of the songs are songs that I grew up listening to. So, I, yeah, I'm, I, th- I, 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 I'm with you on that. Like, not necessarily on this album, but I'm just like, whatever is the best collection of songs for you personally is their yeah. best album because That's it's the point whatever you make. bring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, well, I would say I, I think "Blowing the Wind" really suits their skill set, and I think it shows in the execution. I think it's really, really good. I think. The idea, this is fun, and I get it. There's a nostalgia value here in the tunes you grew up with, but they don't translate as well. And I don't honestly, I don't think they've tried quite as hard to make them translate as well as the album prior. I should also say that I, I just to kind of echo, I'm not to kind of back up Chris's point a little bit. I don't think there's a whole hell of a lot between these two records. Like they're very, very close. It's a very close run thing for me between "Blowing the Wind" and "Take a Break." And um, but the reason I went for this one, like I said, is because I know these songs more. Mm-hmm. But I think they're both yeah. great records. Alright, my turn. I have chosen Phantomass and I went with Director's Cut, although as I said I did consider doing the first album but decided against it. Phantomass was formed in 1988 in California. Uh, you probably know or have an idea that it's Mike Patton Project. I might 
Patton project par excellence given the range and the scope it gives him to really explore the extremities of what he can do so obviously he's Faith No More Mr Bungle Tomahawk afterwards uh, it also features Dave Lombardo it was originally meant to feature Igor Cavalera <laughs> uh, but Igor passed on it but recommended Dave uh, it has Buzzo uh, King Buzzo Buzz Osborne from Melvins and Trevor Dunn who was also Mr Bungle with Mike Patton and would then go on to be in Tomahawk uh, I think I get double points for this as does Mark I suppose for having a super group and a concept album uh, yeah maybe yours yeah, well, was just being high just being high <laughs> but do you know what I want, I want to say that like part of a super group is like the buzz you get hearing about it and you're like oh that's exciting imagine what they could come up with and then I guess a bonus to a super group is how diverse are the bands they come from or holy shit I didn't think they'd come together so how super is that group and when you go Faith No More Slayer and Melvins you go Oh yes, I really want to hear that. <laughs> like that's yeah, I mean, that's like a oh fuck, aye. It's a pretty formidable troop, isn't it? But also, I think that the, the, we can't overlook the Mister Bungle contingent in this because Phantom Mask quite often sounds like a very, very aggressive Mister Bungle. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that- That really Zappa-esque stuff when it's at its most extreme. Um, yeah, so they formed after Faith No More's first split. Uh, they took their name from a French comic book villain, actually. Uh, and I think in contrast to Down, they, because of the people that were in it, like Dave's saying, a lot of people were totally drooling at the prospect of them and all these a guys were turning up for their shows and then just leaving without signing them <laughs> because once they heard it, they were like, yeah, this should sell, but fuck trying to market that. Um, I think, I mean, how would you describe the sound? Like avant-garde metal, noise, cabaret, doom, yeah. sludge, mm-hmm. electronic, it's basically just little bits of everything like it's totally wild uh, this album director's cut is well you maybe don't know actually it's, it's themed it's like basically slices of songs from various famous movies so they had one before this in 1999 a self-titled album that was based on like basically like on a comic yeah, the, the character the name came from a comic book character and this was titled like pages 1, 2, 3, 4 all the tracks were based on a comic book page it's pretty fucking wild that album it's really hard to keep track of although it, if you have the patience for it some of it is jaw dropping uh, in, in its musicality <laughs> Uh, but it can be a bit of a slog. Uh, Delirium Cordia, the album that came in 04, was a themed on surgery without anaesthetic. Uh, they had an album called Suspended Animation, which was kind of based around animation and comic themes again, and had this. It was released as a calendar. Uh, had this weird sort of. All the tracks were named after days in April, like the holidays of April, but the holidays were all weird, invented things. Dead, dead odd uh, and they've got a couple of live records kicking about including a live version of this which is sort of underlines how fucking amazing they are that they can do this out of a studio because it does sound a lot like studio work until you see them actually playing it mm-hmm. Uh, 
Uh, they've got split EPs as well. Uh, they were doing a really big influence on bands like Locust, Carbomb, even I know that Slipknot and Mastodon are fucking massive fans of them that have like name checked them a number of times as well. Yeah, Tool uh, as well. Yeah. Uh, between the buried and me, love that proggy shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean um, Justin from the Locust ended up doing Dead Cross with Mike Patton, so uh, that you could you could immediately hear that sort of frantic, sort of like tongue in cheek silliness, and it. it's not just raging hardcore or whatever. It's actually quite fruity. Do you know what I mean? Um, another celebrity fan, Danny DeVito, apparently. Yeah, and also he, he, he took his son to see them, and he, became, <laughs> he he took his son to see them, and he really really liked them, and became close friends with like Patton, and he still is to this day. See, Danny DeVito just gets better. Like he's one he of the, one of these celebrities that gets gets further away from being cancelled. The more you find <laughs> out about him, and the older he gets, the better he gets. Uh, also, uh, Jason Popson, the singer in Mushroom Head, said that Phant- Phantomus were his favourite band. So you know, no, that'll be big props. Uh, Alan Moore is also a big fan, which kind of helps with the comic book theme. And Moby, big outspoken fan of Phantomus as well. See, before uh, you go into the uh, anything else, I just want to state. Very important that this entire thing is a Mike Patton solo project, essentially, because he writes all the music for it. Mm. Uh, yeah, but the problem but is I, that, yeah, in Chris's defence here, Dave Lombardo on drums. This is one of my top five drumming albums of all time. I'm, like, not, I'm not. I don't mean to take away take away from it by saying that, but just like he's com- like he's got complete control over everything. Like it's it's basically yeah, but Mike like Patton's these solo. guys, like. You can't have anybody else playing this shit. <laughs> totally, yeah. You, totally, you absolutely could not. There's nobody else in the world that could really do this. Um, well, I think to to back up my supergroup claim as well, which I think is pretty bulletproof, like, people are buying this not just because it's a Mike Patton project, because Mike Patton has loads of other projects that are far more obscure than this, but the fact that Buzzo and Lombardo are on this especially is, is what sells it in conjunction with Patton. I, I, the writing is good, but... It's the it's the sense of like supergroup that, that that really shifts us, and I think like there's not a lot of bands could really sound like Phantomus. Like Dave says, Lombardo is just so good, and and Buzz Osborne as well. I mean, I know Melvin's is generally seen as being quite slow, but he's a very yeah. Very, I never very, knew very he could shred like this. <laughs> so innovative as a guitarist as well. Like he's got like a thousand different styles, um, and when you include Patton's range and also Trevor Dunn's playing, Trevor Dunn's a phenomenal bass player, and he had to be to be in Mister Bungle as well. And they're clearly all up for a bit of a laugh, which mm. is kind of one of the things that makes this album and makes this band work. I think they have a similar quality like Queens of Stone Age where you have people that are all very credible that are involved in it it's quite a cool group there's nobody there that's a bit of a like like Dave said or the guy from Mushroom Head or whatever it's everybody's got chops and kind of street points do you think um, it's kind of so, weird that Dave Lombardo is considered that when he's the drummer for Slayer ex-drummer from Slayer no no he, he joined them again after he left well he got out though for some of the horrible shit <laughs> well, for the, some of the new metal stuff yeah but then it came back towards the end you know when they were yeah, and, and all, all diminished I mean, as look, players <laughs> but yeah, him, obviously well, s- same as Faith No More then I guess but I mean the, loads of people go back to projects but I mean Lombardo was like vintage Slayer oh yeah he? I he mean he's like, like a phenomenal drummer one of the best drummers in the world I think but I think it's but weird not just that... not just a good drummer though he was the vintage period of this band when they were at their most cool mm-hmm. and darkest and most threatening and menacing like when they were, became the legends they are it was Lombardo Paul Bostaff's a fucking great drummer but like he presided over some shit as well in that band yeah and, and he now plays drums for the Misfits and for Suicidal Tendencies you know so I, I just think it's really interesting if everybody in Slayer who who were very cool and then became very uncool in the in the 90s and late early 2000s he's the one with the most 
I guess, quote-unquote, rehabilitated reputation. I find that yeah, quite yeah. interesting. Uh, we won't do all the tracks, obviously, but to give like a very quick tour, The Godfather, the opening track, uh, the tune by Nino Rota, uh, has a really Ennio Morricone feel to it, and it's got this gonzo thrash meets gnashing thing in it. Mm. It's fucking absolutely furious. Yeah, that was the first one I ever heard, and I was yeah, like, yeah, iconic. sign me up. It's fun. It's a lot of fun, that song, even though yeah, it's, totally. it's so much fun. <laughs> yeah, uh, King Buzzles to the fore on the second one, Der Golem, which was based on a silent film from 1920, this really misanthropic sludge. Cape Fear version is really popular uh, some fucking absolutely mental pattern vocals just for about two minutes into that Rosemary's Baby is for a lot of people the favourite one in this because it's got that really un- like unnerving so good la, la, la. That is so good, man. And the baby cries in it and stuff. And the way he goes from that la 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 to one of his nastiest screams that he does on any of his albums. Uh, The Omen is my personal favourite. Uh, I, my, I, I really like Spider Baby. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say Because it's as got well, that <laughs> sort of gonzo. Fuck, what were the band that we did a while back that had their own coffin, like total. That oh, the hung, 80s Matchbox Beer. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's got that vibe to it. Bones, bats and bones, teenage monsters in haunted homes. The ghosts on the stair, the vampires fight. Better beware, there's a full moon tonight. I, I mean, it was a, it, the film was like that that it was taken from anyway. Yeah, exactly. Like, movie. Yeah, 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 big ghoulish. Uh, the Henry Portrait of Serial Killer one in this is this really spooky, dark ambient thing that would be a wee bit like some of the Melvin stuff on uh, Boot Liquor and The Maggot and stuff like yeah. that. Um, yeah, I mean, so great. And then Twin, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. What a fucking version as well. Another highlight of the record. I think it's a fucking great record. I think they're a really difficult band to to listen to in one sitting, but the recognisability of the tracks in this album makes it really work because there's an added novelty because you're listening to, you know, a bit like with the Me First stuff, you're like, oh, this is that famous song and this is that famous song. Well, in this case, you're like, oh, this is that famous movie and this is that famous movie. Mm-hmm. And that helps you through it, even though sonically it's just as extreme as the first album. You have more points on the map, more reference points, and I think it makes it a little bit easier to digest. Uh, I love it. I think a lot of people love this album. Um, um, and I think it's a really great example of like bringing a lot of abilities together, but also their personalities together. Like the, the, the stupidity of this album, the reverence for old film, the sort of respectful, playful way they take the songs. I think there's a, there's a lot of love in it, but on the part of the band members as well. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, to be honest, man, I think that all three of us have picked records which have a lot of love in them. Mm, oh, definitely. Yeah. And a lot of hate in Dave's case. <laughs> yeah, but that's what they feed off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for, like, I enjoy Director's Cut. Um, Phantom Ass are a bit extreme, and I like that about yeah. them. Um, I don't think this album completely works for me 100%, but that's fine. It's, it was never gonna. Yeah, good- it doesn't work 100%. There's yeah, there's definitely bits there's, on it yeah. that you're like, oh, I could skip this bit, or that bit doesn't yeah. make sense, or whatever. But yeah. you've got to admire what it tries to do. And yeah. for the most part, achieves totally. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of really good details in it, which which for me kind of underlines it as being like a as has been telling of a mic pattern written almost entirely solo project. Because I know when he's babies, there's bells and strings and woodblock and all that, and it's like, well, mm-hmm. someone that's quite attuned to music is going to know when to chuck those kind of things in, you know. Yeah, um, there's yeah. loads of loads of little details in the whole record, which is really cool. Like it's crooning on Twi- and Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me. Mm-hmm. It's just brilliant. It's, it, it does a lot of scat and stuff. Um, yeah man it's just his, his entire oeuvre of talent is on display here I think mm-hmm. and I think that's what makes it quite a powerful album for me comparing the three right I've listened to that down record like 12-15 times in the last two weeks and I'll probably actually go back to it quite a lot just because it's so easy to listen to me for me the director's cut I'll maybe listen to this once a year mm-hmm. and that'll be enough but you know, every time I, when I go do go back to it, I'll go, oh fuck, I love this. It's mental. It's great. And you don't have to apologize. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Me first in the Gimme Gimmies, I'm obviously never going to listen to that. But if somebody puts it on at a party, I'll enjoy the fuck out of it. <laughs> yeah. It's a good it's a good selection. There are asterisks next to all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let's see what folks think. So in order to vote on this, you have got to go to our website because we can only do a three-way poll on the website. So please do that. While you're there, you can uh, check out some of our other episodes. Uh, they're uh, all really cool, and we talk about some punk and some metal and some racism quite a lot. <laughs> and now for what's easily the best bit of every episode, uh, the Nexus. The Nexus. This is the first time we're seeing Nexus tonight. Will it be the last? What do they have in store this for us? not good for- Why am I here? You're in the Nexus. This is the Nexus. For you. This is what you want. Um, should we go in the same order? I went first, didn't yeah, I? Yeah, but uh, just very quickly, if this is your first time, which it shouldn't be, or your second time, we're now going to attempt to, in this case, join the artists that we picked to somebody that was pulled out of a hat, Ray Harryhausen, the famous stop-motion animator from like Jason and the Argonauts and all that stuff. And that was chosen by Lewis Holler and friend of the podcast. And uh, Ray Harryhausen, by the way, has a superb exhibition on Edinburgh until, I think, October of this year, which everybody should go and check out. And I'm sure that's mm. probably why Lewis chose it, because he'd been at it. Great. Uh, yep, so I believe that puts you first, Dave. Yeah, so what I've done is, I guess you could call the Nexus, it's kind of similar to the uh, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, would you say? Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right, well, let's just see what happens here. So Jimmy Bohr, uh, Crowbar and I Hate God guitarist, played drums for Down. He is married to Dana Catherley. 
an actress since 2012. And gosh, her IMDb is uh, quite something. She <laughs> was blonde slave girl in Gorgasm. She was goth chick number one in Hoodoo for Voodoo. She was Donna in Goreface Killer. And in 2004, she was Madeline in the classic Stabbed in the Face. <laughs> was that a Daniel Day-Lewis? No, it was Laurence Olivier. Do you not remember that one? <laughs> um, Gorgasm and Stabbed in the Face were both directed by Jason Mathern. And he is the founder of a New, New Orleans fringe filmmakers uh, called Terror Optics. And they just basically, <laughs> they make t- terrible low budget exploitation films like Attack of the Cockface Killer. Uh, <laughs> and in, uh, in 2017, he directed and produced Silk Scream. And Silk Scream featured an actor that people might have actually heard of. His name is... Ari Lehman, Ari Lehman, and Ari Lehman. Oh, yeah. He was the original Jason in Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th also featured a budding young actor by the name of Kevin Bacon. See what I've done there? I've linked wow. to Kevin Bacon. Wow. We've never done That's that before. Meta. That is meta. So, uh, did you know Kevin Bacon, as well as being a now an older actor, is also a musician? And is in a band called the Bacon Brothers with his brother, Michael Bacon. Um, And they've been making music since 1995. It's kind of shit, folky country rock. You know, rich uh, man plays shit music um he was uh, but they've of course because it's kevin bacon they've played lots of you know festivals and blah 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 of and in 2009 they were the special guests for episode 16 of live from daryl's house which was a monthly free internet concert from daryl hall of hall and oates fames <laughs> just a house mm-hmm. now adult education absolute banger by hall and oates is that hall and oates or is that a, i can't remember if that's just a no, I think that's Hollow Notes, yeah. Adult Education featured uh, on the original um, single. It had a remix by Niall Rogers of Chic. Niall Rogers of Chic, I mean, he's worked on just about everything, but he did the music for Beverly Hills Cop 3. And featuring in Beverly Hills Cop 3 was Ray Harryhausen as an actual as- actor. He was As bar patron bar number two. Two. Yes. Yeah. So I got how in do, there. How do I know that, Dave? Is it maybe because you've also used that? <laughs> yeah. Motherfucker. Uh, but uh, just uh, for for the purposes of disambiguation, uh, Ari Lehman was the child Jason in the first Friday. Yeah, thing. that's right. N- not the grown up Jason. And Ari Lehman is also a composer and musician. And he plays in like a kind of metal band called First Jason. <laughs> nice. nice. Yeah, why not? Um, Mark? Uh, so I've managed to do it in four steps, which is great. <laughs> uh, so on the album, Blown the Wind, me first in the game, I gave his cover to Slip John B. That song actually features on the Wolf of Wall Street um, with Leonardo DiCaprio, of course. Leonardo DiCaprio was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by Quentin Tarantino. And obviously that film takes place in a fictionalised version of Hollywood uh, in the 1960s. 
one of the big directors of that era was Sam Wanamaker, and he's actually portrayed in that film by Nicholas Hammond. And Sam Wanamaker directed Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, which featured the work of, and was written by and produced by Ray Harryhausen. Yeah, there you go. Nice good. and quick. So I'll see your four and I'll raise you to two. <laughs> I've done it in two steps, uh, but then as you can guess, I felt really unsatisfied with that, so I then found a way to make it longer. Um, in two steps, Phantomas. Uh, I take their name from a comic book character A French comic book character Who in the French comic books Was a really sadistic killer by the way But in in the Mexican and sort of Latin American versions He was actually a hero It's got a really confused genesis as character Because it ends up in some places Being the inspiration for good guys Then in other parts of of graphic novel lore It becomes the bad guy Alan Moore's done stuff in him In the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen And stuff like that Anyway, he he was uh, the inspiration in, In a good sense for a character called Phantom Mallard, aka Phantomius, aka Papyrinic, aka Donald Duck's character Duck Avenger, which was uh, a kind of incarnation of Donald Duck that appeared in a number of Disney films under various names, but that's who it was taken from, Phantomus. And uh, on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, outside the address 6840 Hollywood Boulevard, you can find Donald Duck's star. Right next to that of Ray Harryhausen. Hey, that's pretty good. I would have just left it at that. Yeah, you should have left it at that. Um, Okay, but from the Donald Duck link, Super Turbocharged, Donald Duck's middle name is Fauntleroy. Donald Fauntleroy Duck (laughs) Uh, He took that name from the character Little Lord Fauntleroy uh, Which is from a book published in 1886 By Francis Hodgson Burnett uh, Which was apparently the quote Harry Potter of its day uh, But a poor kid that sort of inherits great wealth And goes over to the States It's it's like an inverse version of King Ralph Basically Mm -hmm. Um, And Little Lord Fauntleroy uh, Was also I don't know, maybe it's slightly in bad taste. The name given to the body of a wee boy that was discovered in 1921 in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Um, the, the wee boy, uh, who was between five and seven years old, had been killed by blunt force trauma and he was found in black stockings, really fancy underwear, patent leather shoes. And because of the way he was dressed and the fact that it didn't look like he was from that part of Wisconsin, he was nicknamed Little Lord Fauntleroy. Um, The body was actually displayed in the town, but nobody claimed it. Uh, And police actually suspected there was a connection with a guy called Edmund LeMay, who had claimed that his son, who was missing, had been killed in South Africa, but there was no record of this happening in South Africa. Uh, And also in the town, just prior, a woman was spotted and she was wearing, I think she was maybe wearing a red sweater or something like that, and she was crying and asking about if anyone had seen her son maybe like a couple of weeks before. Um, But yeah, they never got to the bottom of it. Uh, The boy was actually eventually buried at the expense of an an older lady in town who felt so bad about the story, and years later when she finally passed away, she had herself buried next to him to to keep him company. Uh, Wakesha, Washington is famous for another uh, kind of gruesome bit of lore, which is that it was the the site of the Slenderman stabbing. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, such a small place and such grim uh, history. Uh, In that, two girls, who were both aged 12, lured their friend into the woods and stabbed her 19 times to, uh, uh, as they put it, appease the Slenderman. The the, the wee girl actually survived, the one that got stabbed. Um, She does... She does some sort of victim outreach stuff now. Um, but uh, they ought to, <laughs> this is so weird, to honour her and to aid her survival, they held a Bratwurst Festival. 
Um, this that that was held just days prior to her recovering enough to return to school and it earned it raised seventy thousand dollars i think for her hospital bills that's a lot of sausages Um, so uh and the story of slender man went on i mean it came from a creepypasta but it went on to inspire a lot of things including the movie of the same name slender man and the actress jazz sinclair who plays the role of chloe in that film was nominated for a razzie in 2018 for worst supporting actress wow uh and another former Razzie nominee uh, for Worst Film in 1994 was Beverly Hills Cop 3. And in the film Beverly Hills Cop 3, <laughs> bar patron number two is played by Ray Harryhausen. Great hey. work. Two for the price of one. Beverly hey. Hills Cop 3 is a big step down. It's a gift that keeps on giving, though. Eh? Yep. So many next eye. Um, all right, guys, somebody want to spill the beans on next week's show? Yeah, so next week um, I've decided to go with... The Walker Brothers and their 1978 album Night Flights. So that's featuring Scott Walker. Yep. Uh, for anyone that hasn't put two and two together, and it's uh, a massive, massive discography, uh, or at least story surrounding this guy. So that's going to be a two-part episode. Yeah. And somewhere at the end of that two-part episode, we will be doing a nexus. And the nexus shall be. Shall be. Oh, this is. Fucking timely. The Nexus from Scott Walker uh-huh. to Ted Ted Nugent. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. As picked by uh, listener Kevin McCormack. Ted Ideal. Nugent had a, had a big week last week after weeks of uh, denying COVID was real and saying that 500,000 deaths were faked. He almost died of COVID. Yeah, great. <laughs> As if that keeps happening. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah, it's odd. <laughs> so, um, all right. All right, that was fun. Mixtape in the bag, uh, and a really, I imagine, very, very busy week of studying Scott Walker yes. and the Walker Brothers. Yep. Yeah. Thanks, All right, man. team. Well, uh, yeah, see you next week, everybody. This is um, Mark Fraser from the Curator Podcast, David John Weaver of Detour Scotland, <laughs> and Chris Cusack used to worship Stirling Council on the Council Tax Desk. You may remember me. Super group uh, podcast. Restless natives, and this podcast is so super. See you next time. Bye.